0: We um, uh, go to the second of a series of sermons that will unfold over a period of months called Why. This is the second. Last week was Why Trinity? This week, Why Smash? Thought the better of it this week in conversation with staff, and we added another word. Why, sta- Why Smash Idols? Next, the next in this series will be not until August, and that will be Why Build? But let's be inspired first from the prophet Isaiah, 44th chapter. I'm going to read the first section listed in your bulletin, and then those last two verses, 24 through 26, will be in the sermon itself today. This is Isaiah's commentary on a voice and message that he hears God speaking to the people. Listen for the word of God. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness is neither seen nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a God or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans, too, are merely human Let them all assemble, let them stand up, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a stylish, finishes it with planes, and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form, with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it. Makes it a, a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he roasts meat, eats it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I can feel the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god his idol bows down to it and worships it he prays to it and he says save me for you are my god they do not know nor do they comprehend for their eyes are shut so that they cannot see and their minds as well so that they cannot understand no one considers nor is their knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire I also baked bread on its coals I roasted meat and have eaten now shall I make the rest of it an abomination shall I fall down before a block of wood he he feeds on ashes a deluded mind has led him astray and he cannot save himself or say is not this thing in my right hand a fraud the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to Thee. O God, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Now, there used to be a little store on the corner of Central and Wilmette Avenues in Wilmette, Illinois, just down the street from the first congregation that I served. I loved that little store. It was perfectly situated in, in the perfect place for the kind of store it was. I don't even know what to call it. A curio shop, a, a variety kind of store. If I ever had to buy a gift for a member of the staff of the church, I would walk down to that store for they always had what I needed. They somehow perfectly knew the material that was right for that clientele. And everyone in the town who would go into the store knew the etiquette of the store. They knew that you walked a certain distance from other people in the store. They knew how to not be a bull in a china shop or knock things over. They just knew what kind of questions to ask and what not. They knew how to relate to the clerk behind the register or the manager and owner of the store who was often there. They knew how to not bother other patrons. It was perfect. Did I tell you? It was perfect, little I mention that because as I was reading Isaiah this afternoon an event that happened in that store one afternoon came to mind. I remember I was there for some reason or another I don't know why but I was perusing the shelves following all the rules doing it just right in that perfect little store and the music was also perfectly playing. Just the right volume, not too loud, not too soft, to keep everybody feeling good and flowing around the store. And, and then the sound of a song of a, from a singer I'd never heard before came over the PA. A young voice of an artist whose story I learned later, who died young and whose music wasn't known until after she died. It was just becoming known at the time, and her rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, of all songs, came over the PA in this little perfect store. And as the voice began to lilt, in in an original arrangement, an adaptation of that familiar song, everyone sort of stopped. Wherever they were, just stopped there was a kind of attention of every single person in the store, listening to this, absorbed in it, forgetting why they were there or what they were doing. And as the song came to an end, I looked over and saw the owner of the store just move her hand over to the tape deck, we still had tapes then, and just push the button to turn it off. Silence. Silence. And after a moment of quiet, then people began to look up at each other and say things like, Who who is that? Or, Wow, did you hear that? Conversations between strangers began. Uh, Different kinds of things were talked about with the clerk at the cash register. The owner came by and showed us all what the music was that she was playing, and almost everybody in the store bought a copy of the cassette. I did too. Rules, somehow, strangely, were broken. In the mid-1980s, there was a book written by a man named Robert Ackerman called Religion as Critique. In this book, as a philosopher of religion, he took on what he believed to be the prevailing approach to religion religion among scholars of the time who tended to define religion by the doctrines that we believe in. What do Christians believe? Among Christians, what do Catholics believe? What do Protestants believe? Among Protestants, what do Presbyterians believe and Methodists believe and Lutherans believe? What do Muslims believe? Well, what? What kind of Muslim are you talking about? What do Hindus believe? What kind of Hindu are you talking about? On and on and on. And it was all about systems of belief and understanding. And he took that to task by saying the difference between religions and other forms of human thought, take science for example, that attempts in its core uh, work to understand how things are and then manipulate how things are for purposes sort of ad-hocly derived from different sources. Religion, he argued, was actually founded on a sense of how things ought to be. A vision, an impulse, a desire for things to match a vision of goodness and wholeness. And then everything else sort of descends or moves down from that sense of desire. under everything that we do is a yearning, a desire to match a vision that we hear and sense is God's view and vision for the world and for our lives. We make a major mistake too often when we become just too short-sighted and we lose the sense that there is a grander vision that we are seeking to approximate in our life together. And so when we do imagine a future, we put it off to some distant abstraction or some poetic metaphor in eternity, instead of a practical movement of God's love in all things through all time by God's power. And by making it too abstract, we lose the experience of this yearning and this vision. And it becomes less relevant to our lives. The problem you see is our idolatry, our love for and dependence on what we do and the things that we make and the visions that we create so that we give too little power to anything more. We give so much over to what we've made that we lose perspective sometimes We lose the ability to say yes and to say no. Sometimes we fool ourselves about so many things. And in some ways, we just become kind of silly. One of the clearest critiques of this is in Isaiah 44, in the verses just read. Isaiah, as you remember if you heard this, creates an image of craftspeople making impressive things with care and attention and intelligence with their own hands and from their own minds. We do too, don't we? But we, like the people of Isaiah's time, too easily forget the source of our humanity and we begin worshiping our own creations just as Isaiah says. And we're not only forgetful, we're also weak, and we're also fearful. Isaiah speaks of metal workers, and he speaks of carpenters. He could speak of anyone, of, and anything that we create, even things, relationships, comforts, happiness, purpose, power, justice, righteousness, You name it. We plant the seeds and we nurture the oak. We cut down the cedar. Nothing extraordinary, nothing magical. We use the gifts that we have been given, and often for very good purpose. We even create things of great beauty from from all that we have been given, carefully and lovingly. Now, Isaiah elaborates on this with that image of carpentry. We cut the wood, he says. We use some of it for our own needs. Wood to heat with or to bake bread. All good. We're grateful for it, and we know where it came from. And we also use some of those things to make those imagined things, those new things, Things that we think will not just meet our needs, but maybe eliminate some of our needs. Things that we think will ease our fear, or soothe our restlessness, or assure us about the future, or shore us up against our ruins. We get awfully creative and in impressive ways. But that is also where our idolatry can begin as we become caricatures of grateful, intelligent creatures, we begin to shift our gratitude from the one who gave us gifts with which to create to what we create. We give our creations life thinking they're bigger than us. We give them magical power over us to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves for fear that our relationship with the source of all things, the source of our own lives, just isn't enough to give us what we need. And so Isaiah says we begin to worship the things that we have made. Objects, organizations, technologies, And more. This is what Isaiah hears God puzzling over and even laughing at. For there we are, worshiping things made from the same pile of wood that we burned to warm ourselves just five minutes ago, trusting something that we've made as if it is more powerful than us or more life-giving than our relationship with our creator. Shall I fall down and worship a block of wood? Why? Yet so many around him didn't get the joke. You see, that's Isaiah's smash. It's really very simple. He simply laughs at what we give so much power to. Well, okay, you say. Isaiah laughs at the idols. But how are you going to connect that with the idea you talked about of religion as a critique of the present on the basis of a vision of the future? Or that experience you talked about in that little store in Wilmette? Where are you going, preacher? Well, I compliment you on that question. It shows that you've been listening. And here's how I propose to make those connections. I'm going to back up. I'm going to follow the order of biblical logic that isn't always straightforward point by point. And I'm going to find the significance of Isaiah's laughter at idolatry by looking at what wraps that whole passage that I read to you, what comes before it and what comes right at the end of it. For that is how scripture often works. Something is said and then illuminated and then re-said again with emphasis, layer upon layer, wave upon wave. So right before the passage that I just talked about, the prophet is speaking for God. I'm first, I'm last, and everything in between, God says. I am the only God there is. Who compares with me? Speak up. See if you measure up. From the beginning, who else has always announced what's coming? So what is coming next? Anybody venture a try? Don't be afraid and don't worry. Haven't I always told you what is going on? And then to reprise at the end of Isaiah's laughing, smashing of idols, he hears God speaking again. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth, who frustrates the omens of liars and makes fools of diviners and turns back the wise and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the prediction of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, Ah, it shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt and I will raise up their ruins. The confident chuckle with which Isaiah refuses to give power to the idols of his day is inspired by the simple, more powerful vision of what genuinely creates And what gives genuine hope and what rebuilds and what is most real both in the beginning and in the end keep that in your line of vision and the present will feel less fearful and you will be more receptive to what's true that's what he's saying to us what feels so powerful in the moment can be relativized and put in its place by the experience and the feel of a larger vision. And the God who calls us all to live fully and faithfully together will be our source of peace. We don't take our position in the world as believers to make a point or to win the day or to just tear things down to get more power for ourselves, or to be proud of our own creativity. We take our position in the world to smile, to chuckle at human silliness with love, to tell the truth, the whole truth, about a creation loved by its creator, and to hear a song whose beauty lifts us up out of the moment and to sing that song. And in the place where we hear and we sing, we see more, we hear more, we know more, we desire more than what the world gives. And when we can do that, if only for a moment, we give the world less authority and we begin to love it more. We give less of our energy to things that promise more than they deliver. And we give more of our energy to things that keep us connected to larger visions and greater hopes. We let life feel a bit more like the gift from God that it is rather than the burden that we too often make it. We see the idols of our creation and we smile, finally free of them. I think that's what I experienced in that little store on Wilmette and Central Avenue. Just a little analogy. A little glimpse of all of this when the quiet rules that we all agreed on on how to live well together in the world that we've created, rules that maybe we had made into our own kind of idols, gave way to a kind of beauty that asked more of us and gave us a peace to give more to each other and help strangers kind of find something new. It is just so much richer and deeper in the life of faith. And that, my friends, is what I believe we give the world in Christ. Amen.